Hello, everyone. This is Annie, and you're listening to Heroes and Zeros, a true crime podcast. So today's story is just a little bit different than the ones we've done in the past. Though this story does have a child at the center of the story, this time she happens to be a 10-year-old serial killer, Mary Flora Bell. Mary Flora Bell was a 10-year-old child from England, and she happened to kill two preschool-age boys, also considered toddlers, in Scottswood, which is a district on the west end of Newcastle, and a community just north of London in England in 1968. 27 years after her conviction, Mary Bell agreed to talk to Giddes Sereny about her harrowing childhood, her terrible acts, and, and her public trial and her years of imprisonment to talk about what was done to her and what she did, who she was, and who she became. Now, Giddes Sereny was an Austrian-British biographer, a historian, and an investigative journalist who came to be known for her interviews and profiles of infamous figures, including Mary Bell. Nothing that Bell says in her interviews is intended to be an excuse for her crimes, nor is it mine when I lay out in front of our listeners what kinds of things that the child endured that led up to the murders. Instead, Mary's devastating story forces us as a society to ponder society's responsibility for children that are at the breaking point, whether it's in Newcastle, Arkansas, or Iowa. If she would have received the help or intervention by adults in her life, things may have turned out differently, but we will never know. But knowing Mary's story might just be the story that helps us save some other child from being abused to the point of being turned into a serial killer. As the old adage says, if you see something, say something. This is the disturbing story of Mary Flora Bell. As quoted by author Gitta Sereny, pain and death were Mary's companions almost from the moment of her birth. Mary Bell was born on May 26, 1957, and she was a beautiful baby with dark hair and violet-blue eyes. But when her mother, Elizabeth, or Betty McCricket, first laid eyes on her beautiful baby that she just gave birth to, because the nurses were going to hand her the newborn, she reportedly screamed, Get that thing away from me. And not surprisingly, things went downhill from there. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we tell you the story of Mary, we must first give you a little insight into her mother's story. This section will be called The Mom. Her mom, Elizabeth, or Betty McCricket, was born in Gateshead in 1939 and was described as depressive and very erratic. At the age of 16, Betty McCricket was a mentally unstable and alcoholic sex worker. And then she had her baby by the time she was almost 17 or just turning 17. After hearing this, I thought, wow, Betty is going to have a story to tell. So I looked into it, but I was wrong. She didn't. Her childhood was remarkably normal and uneventful even. Family and friends said that Betty was very religious as a child and that they actually thought she was going to grow up and become a nun. It is said that something changed in Betty when her father died. Now, I couldn't find what year it was that this happened, but it just said that she began to drift away from her family and became more eccentric. 
In an interview with one of Betty's sisters named Isla in 1960, she described her sister Betty as, quote, demented, end quote. In 1960, Betty had taken Mary to an adoption agency to give away her daughter. So she would have been, what, three years old. And the woman was going to move to Australia and was excited about it, and she went as far as to buy clothes for her when Betty's sister Isla intervened and retrieved the child. Now, it's another one of those moments that, in hindsight, where you wonder how things would have turned out if she had been adopted. But hindsight's unfair, and we shouldn't spend too much time speculating on something that we can never know. So Kathy, another sister of Betty's, offered to adopt Mary when two of Betty's other children accidentally ate some of Betty's pills. But at this time, Betty then refused to give Mary up. I read in one source also that Betty had had another child, and her name was June, before she'd had Mary, because it stated that in 1953, Betty was arrested for the neglect that led to the death of her daughter, June Bell. Though I didn't ever find any additional information on that subject, but Mary did have siblings. And you may be wondering, who was Mary's father then? If the mom was around and she had kids, there had to be a dad. Well, there are questions as to his true identity. After Mary was born, a man by the name of Billy Bell married Betty, and he was a lifelong criminal who Mary thought may or may not have been her father. She was told to call him Uncle Billy, so it is unlikely that he was her biological father. But whoever her real father was has never been confirmed or denied. And remember, Betty was a sex worker, so more than likely it was one of her clients. But back to Billy Bell. He was a burly man that had a mop of curly hair and, and red sideburns. They lived in an impoverished slum area in the west end of Newcastle that was called Scottswood. And this town was still recovering from the war and was considered to be kind of neglected and kind of a rough neighborhood. Though still, Scottswood was considered a close-knit working-class community that had latchkey children that was home alone, doing chores, doing homework, or playing out in the derelict streets, often for hours without any parental supervision. But remember, that time of growing up was different than what things look like today. Back then, there, were, there wasn't uh, CCTV cameras on every corner, and there weren't armies of social workers that were trying to intervene families and doing interviews and checking to make sure that the kids were okay. And this was an easier time where people apparently weren't as worried about things going on, that people were maybe safer in the 60s. So Mary Flora Bell was one of those latchkey kids. There was also kind of a spirit of camaraderie and community in this little town, and Mary knew all of her neighbors. And ironically, she would even babysit for the local children. A fact when looked at in hindsight is quite disturbing. Now back to Betty. Okay, Betty was always eager to drop her baby daughter off with relatives whenever possible. She really didn't want to have her kid around. But she was often away from home on quote-unquote business trips to Glasgow. And Glasgow was like 150 miles away, so it wasn't a short trek. And Betty had a stand there where she would pick up clients. But Betty didn't only see her clients on the streets of Newcastle or Glasgow. She would bring them to her home on White House Road. Betty was into sadomasochism and one time told a social worker that she always hid the whips from the children. So it didn't seem to dawn on her that maybe bringing 
strange man into your children's home for sessions of sadomasochism was not fine, whether she hid the whips or not. And when Betty was on one of these quote-unquote business trips, her children would be left alone for days to their own devices, and their father figure, Uncle Billy Bell, would also be gone because he had to work also. But I will add here, there is no record of Billy Bell ever being mean to the children. Now that's a first, isn't it? One of my cases that doesn't have a man trying to kill his children or hurt some child. In fact, years later, during Mary's trial, he was the only one that seemed to make Mary smile when he would walk into the courtroom. She was actually happy and eager to see him. But Betty's absences when she was gone were considered probably periods of rest for the young Mary, who was subject to not only mental abuse, but physical abuse as well at the hands of her mother. Not wanting her daughter was one thing, but Betty abusing her was another. She was a drama queen and loved attention, and this she found through Mary. So when Betty did spend time with her daughter, Mary's home life was a nightmare of extreme abuse, deprivation, and on one event in 1960, Mary is only three years old, it is reported that Betty tosses her daughter out of a first floor window. Now, I can't imagine just taking a three-year-old and tossing them out a window, whether it's the first floor or the fifth. Either way, it's disturbing. Other family members would tell Sereny, remember the author, that in the early years of her life, Betty would try to actually kill Mary, but would try to make it look like an accident. Betty McCricket's sister witnessed Betty trying to give Mary away to a woman who had been unsuccessful in trying to adopt. Apparently, the sister quickly recovered Mary herself, and apparently this woman that had been trying to adopt was a little crazy, they said. Anyway, that's just according to my source. It is speculated that due to the drug overdoses that Mary was subject to by way of her mother, that maybe Mary had brain damage that wasn't picked up on or even diagnosed. Some attribute the many accidents, unquote, that Mary had was due to Betty's determination to rid herself of an encumbrance, a problem. Now, it makes me wonder, though, she had other kids, like three or four, and why was it such a bother to have Mary around? Because remember, it was at the very beginning of Mary's life that she just did not want her around. I don't get it. I don't know. And we may never know. <laughs> so now we're going to head to the next section of our story, Mary the Child. So Mary was described as darkly angelic looking and had piercing lavender blue eyes with a dark bobbed haircut. Family members said that by the age of two, Mary had already started to act cold, detached, and withdrawn. A key incident in this young child's life was marked by loss at such a young age. She had seen her five-year-old friend run over and killed by a bus. Another traumatizing event that obviously would cause PTSD in Mary's life. But Mary was an all child from the beginning. She never cried. She rarely showed emotion. And I think that right there would be a huge red flag in today's society. And I would hope that today's parents would catch it. I mean, wouldn't it sound familiar with all of the stories of true crime out there? I mean, you know, if, if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> but things seemed to get worse for Mary after seeing her friend get killed by the bus because Mary would then have trouble connecting with other children. She had difficulty making friends, and she was also considered cunning, manipulative, 
and very intelligent, but she was also damaged, violent, and dishonest. And this violent streak began when she was still a toddler, her family said, because she would frequently lash out and hit them. But it's not surprising then that Mary became who she became. Her awful home life seemed to shape her personality. Her mom, Betty, had unpredictable mood swings that would result in her physically and verbally, like we said earlier, assaulting Mary. Remember in 1960 when I told you that her mother took her to an adoption agency to give her away? She would have been only three years old, and she may have a memory of that event. I mean, I have a few memories that apparently meant something to me of when I was around two years old and sometimes even before that. So you can be certain that Mary picked up on the fact that her mother did not want her. Kathy, another sister of Betty's, offered to adopt Mary when two of Betty's other children accidentally ate some of Betty's pills. But strangely, Betty refused to give Mary up this time. Maybe it was because she would still be in the family. I'm, I'm not sure. That's just my speculation. It could be said, though, that Mary inherited some of her personality traits from her mother. Like Betty, Mary could be unpredictable and had a dark side. Mary went to a school called the DeLaval Road Junior School. Remember when I said that Mary had lavender blue eyes? I thought that they sounded so beautiful and lovely. Well, I don't think the other children felt that they were lovely. They were actually frightened. Yes, they were ethereal, and yes, they were piercing blue eyes, but they were also void of emotion and very unsettling to her classmates whenever her gaze would land on them because she would just stand there and stare at them. Apparently, there were countless encounters with Mary that left the witnesses with the uneasy feeling that someone very cold and indifferent was in their presence. And for grade school children to pick up on this really says something about how chilling the child really was. Children that went to school with Mary were, of course, afraid of her, not only because of her stare and her gaze, but because she was a bully. But she wasn't just a normal bully. She was one that had a sadistic streak. She attempted to strangle, strangle, mm -hmm, several young children and even stubbed out a cigarette on the cheek of one young girl. Children became very wary, making sure that they were never left alone with the little kid named Mary Bell. Her school teachers would comment on how bright she was, but they would express concerns about her lack of feeling for other people. That would be concerning. In kindergarten, this is kindergarten, she wrapped her hands around a classmate's throat and just squeezed. Of course, she was stopped before you know anything bad happened to the child. Although Mary's violent behavior was noticed by those around her, Nothing was done, and she carried on unchecked with terrible consequences. I read from one source that normally Mary was stoic and unemotional, but sometimes, just sometimes, she would just suddenly erupt in some emotional outburst. Mary also suffered from bedwetting, which in today's classifications of emotional trauma is definitely seen as a red flag. Mary's kindergarten teacher said that Mary was a nightmare. Kindergarten. When the kids are usually seen as sweet and silly and they would run up and give their teachers hugs and draw them pictures and, you know, just be nothing but a, a little ball of sweetness. The teacher said that Mary would pinch, hit, and throttle other children and was constantly making up tall tales and crazy stories. So, apparently, Mary was also given 
intentional drug overdoses by her mother. And in retrospect, it has been considered that perhaps Mary had brain damage from those overdoses. Well, that's likely. I believe Betty, though, not only enjoyed torturing and hurting her children, but Betty loved the attention that she got when Mary was hurting and had even lied to family members telling them that Mary had been run over and killed by a truck. But of course it wasn't true. So it seemed like perhaps she was suffering from Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Another oddity that Betty had was she had black hair, but she would often be seen wearing a blonde and tattered wig. It seemed that Betty didn't like herself very much, that she was always playing a part of some character. Most tragic of all, in the book Cries and Heard, the story of Mary Bell, author Gitta Sereny talks about how as a child, Betty would force her daughter to take part in prostitution. This alleged abuse began at the age of four, but I will add that this remains uncorroborated by family members. And I, I really don't know why family members would know this or suspect it. Because I know if I were Betty, I, I don't even want to put myself in Betty's shoes. But Betty never told anybody, because why would she? But more surprisingly, Mary never told anybody. And perhaps it's because she was afraid of her. Perhaps she just didn't want her mom to get in trouble. Or perhaps it just wasn't true. Allegedly, Mary was forced to witness Betty's sadomasochistic sessions, which included whippings and beatings. And she said that her mother prostituted her, using her as a sex prop. And one client wanted Betty to whip Mary for his pleasure, allegedly, which she obliged. And then when she was four, Mary claims that Betty let one of her clients sodomize her on Betty's bed while strangling her. So even though Mary was a habitual liar, to me this claim seems to make the most sense of why this child had an obsession with strangling other kids and frankly turned out to be the way she did. <laughs> but if any of these claims, if true, it would help explain how Mary became so psychologically damaged. Damaged is a good word for this child. Given all that had happened, it did not surprise them that by age 10, Mary had become an even stranger child who was withdrawn, manipulative, and always hovering on the edge of violence. But only Mary Bell knows for sure if her mother actually pimped her out as she claimed. And supposedly, these incidences never occurred when Billy was home and none of the other children ever picked up on it. Mary didn't even make these claims against her mother until after she was dead. One particularly disturbing event was when Mary tried to strangle a little girl and suffocate her by filling her mouth with sand while her friend and neighbor, Norma Joyce Bell, member who has no relation, held her down. Norma Joyce was a couple years older who apparently had learning disabilities and was easily led by the younger girl. Mary and Norma's terrified victim managed to get away though and the incident is reported to the police but no action was taken. What? <laughs> now, okay, looking back at the time and the child, her age, she was 10, perhaps they just thought it's kids being kids. Yes, she's being a bully, but it's not a criminal offense, is it? Because she's only 10. I, I could see why in, in 68 people were looking at it as, this is a child. What are we supposed to do with a 10-year-old? Either way, something should have been done, but hindsight's always 2020. For weeks before her first murder, Mary Bell had been acting strangely. And I have no idea 
what it was that she was doing that made her even more strange than how people already perceived her. So it must have been something, though. Like, again, in hindsight, you look back at it and you go, oh, wow, you know what? She was acting so weird that first couple weeks before her first murder. So on May 11th in 1968, Mary had been playing with a three-year-old boy, a three-year-old. They might be in preschool, but so he's really considered a toddler. And he was badly injured in a fall from the top of an air raid shelter. Because remember, it wasn't too long after the war. His parents thought it was an accident. And the following day, three mothers came forward to tell police that Mary had attempted to choke their young daughters. A brief police interview and a lecture resulted, but again, no charges were filed. Then on May 25th, the day before she turned 11, Mary Bell strangled the day before her birthday. So she should be excited about her birthday and thinking about what she wanted and planning a party because, you know, she's, she's 10. She's going to be 11. And that's what I would be doing, thinking about what presents I wanted or do I need to blow up my balloons, whatever. But the day before she turned 11, Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown to death in an abandoned house in Scottswood, England. There was a neighborhood worker. His name was John Corridor. And before long, he showed up on the scene and attempted to perform CPR. However, he wasn't successful. The boy was already gone. But as he continued CPR, he says, two nearby young ladies, he calls them, 10-year-old Mary Bell and 13-year-old close buddy and neighbor Norma Bell showed up at the room's entrance. Apparently, Mary had left the scene and returned with her friend Norma to show her her handiwork. And when both girls were spotted in the abandoned home's entryway, they were immediately removed. The two girls left the abandoned home and then went to the door of Martin's auntie, Mrs. Rita Finley. They knocked on it, and when she answered it, they said, one of your sister's youngsters has recently had a mishap. We believe it's Martin. However, we can't tell since he's brimming with blood. End quote. What? Again, these children not only were excited about killing a child, then they wanted to see his body and the kind of the chaos that was happening around him, people trying to revive him. Then they had to go and see the suffering of a loved one. The aunt was, of course, shocked, and she would soon learn of Martin's devastating murder. Back at the abandoned house, police were mystified. Martin Brown's lifeless body was discovered lying on the floor inside a boarded-up, condemned house with blood and saliva just trickling down his cheek just a little bit. Besides the blood and saliva, there were no apparent signs of violence. There was, however, an empty bottle of painkillers on the floor near the body. Without any further clues, police just assumed Martin Brown had swallowed the pills, and they ruled his death an accident. Then, days after Martin's death, Mary Bell appeared on the Brown's doorstep and asked to see him. And his mother, that had answered the door, gently explained to this little girl standing in front of her that, Honey, I'm sorry, Martin's dead. But then Mary said, Yeah, I already know that. I just want to see his body in the coffin. Of course, Martin's mother was shocked and appalled and slammed the door in her face. Shortly after, Mary and her friend Norma broke into a nursery school by stripping the tiles from the rooftop. They destroyed books, upset work areas, and threw ink and paints all around the school before just getting away and leaving. But what was most disturbing about their break-in were the notes that they left. These notes stated that they were taking responsibility for Martin Brown's death and promised to kill again. Now, I've seen copies of the notes, and they are nothing but childish scrawls that are incredibly difficult to read and nonsensical even. And I've heard different translations, but I will try to, my best to tell you what they say. One says, 
Quote, we did murder Martin Brown. Fuck off, you bastard. Unquote. Another one says, you are micey because we murdered the Martin Brown. You better go. Look out. There are murders about. By Fanny and A-U-L-D, faggot screws. Again, we don't know quite what that means. Let's see if we can interpret it. You are micey because we murdered Martin Brown. Wonder if that means like you are you are wimpy because we're the ones that killed him. And you better watch out because there's going to be more. And I don't know what Fanny is and and A-U-L-D and the word I don't like, faggot, screws. I, I don't know. Then the last one says, and it's almost more chilling. I murder so that I may come back. What? <laughs> I may come back and murder maybe? I have no idea. And I don't think anybody really knows what they mean. So obviously, these letters and notes or whatever didn't seem to make much sense. So it isn't surprising that the police assume the notes were nothing but a morbid prank. In bad taste, yes, but still a prank. For the nursery school, this was just the latest and the most disturbing in a series of break-ins. They wearily installed an alarm system. Several nights later, both Mary and Norma were caught at the school, but they were just outside simply loitering around when the police arrived, and they were just told to go home. In the meantime, Mary was telling her fellow classmates that she was the one that had killed Martin Brown. But her reputation as a show-off and a liar prevented anyone from taking her claim seriously. Because I'm sure, if a child is murdered, what's the first thing you think of? I usually think of, because as you can tell from my cases, that some wicked man sexually abused him or just murdered him for fun. You wouldn't think that this 10-year-old little girl with these dark eyes that were kind of a violet blue and dark bobbed hair and was just petite and kind of cute that she was the one that did it, even though she acted weird. That would be the last thing that I would think of. That is until another young boy turned up dead. On the evening of July 31st, 1968, now a three-year-old toddler named Brian Howe was most recently seen by his folks in the city outside of their home, playing with one of his siblings, the family dog, and Mary and Norma Bell. At some point when he didn't return, concerned family members and neighbors searched the area without success. At 11.10 p.m., a search party found Brian's body between two enormous pieces of cement in an area called the Tin Lizzie. When police showed up at the scene, they saw that a purposeful yet weak endeavor had been made to conceal the body, which was covered by just tufts of grass and weeds. So not a lot of effort went into hiding him. This came nine weeks after the death of Martin Brown. An eyewitness, which another little boy, he says he saw Mary tell Brian, the little boy, that since he had a sore throat, she would massage it for him. And then she put her hands around his throat to show him. And then she proceeded to strangle him to death. Now, I don't think she strangled him in front of the little boy. And I don't know any other facts about how old this boy was. If when she squeezed his neck, she actually did kill him and strangle him that's all my sources that's what was written she then proceeded to strangle him to death he had various strange wounds including puncture marks on his thighs and he had a partially mutilated genitals and clumps of missing hair this time mary bell had mutilated the body with scissors using them to scratch his thighs and butchering his penis when brian's sister went looking for him mary and norma offered to help they offered to help search the neighborhood for the little boy that they had just killed. 
And Mary even pointed out the concrete blocks that hit his body. But Norma Norma stopped her and said, no, uh, he's not going to be there. So Brian's sister moved on. So Mary, I think, wanted to see the reaction of uh, Brian's sister. But then Norma got scared and like, no, 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 he's not going to be there. When Brian's body was finally found, the neighborhood panicked because two little boys were now dead. Police interviewed all the local children, hoping someone had seen something that would lead to a suspect. The community was in a state of panic and the police were looking for an answer. And they were shocked when the coroner's report returned because as Brian's blood had cooled in, in the morgue, new marks started to appear on his chest. Someone had used a razor blade to scratch the letter M onto his torso. And there was another disturbing note. The lack of force in the attack suggested that Brian's killer might have been a child. With that information, police started questioning all of the local children. Now their eyes were open and they were looking for strange behaviors of children, which as before, they probably would have just overlooked some child being weird. They weren't looking for a child at the beginning. There were two children in particular who seemed to be acting very strange. And guess who these two kids were? You got it, were Mary Flora Bell and Norma Joyce Bell. The girls did a poor job of disguising their interest in the investigation when they were interviewed by the police. Well, of course they did. They were 10 and 13. Norma Bell, who, like I just said, was 13, seemed excited by the murder, and the detective noted that throughout questioning, she kept smiling, and so it was a huge joke. 11-year-old Mary Bell also reacted oddly and was very evasive, especially when police pointed out that she had been seen with Brian Howe on the day of his death. As the police investigation intensified, Mary continued to act strangely. They called her back for a second interview, and Mary, perhaps sensing investigators were closing in, made up a story where she claimed she had seen another eight-year-old boy with Brian on the day he was murdered. So she made up a story. She seems to be smart enough to be able to do that, but not smart enough to, or to not show her excitement. So I don't know exactly what, I wish I knew exactly what they mean by Mary continues to act strangely because I don't think we can even imagine. We can't put ourselves in her shoes because one, we're not killers. At least I hope some of you listening aren't. (laughs) And two, I wouldn't even think to go as far as to go knock on the door of someone I just killed aunt and say, hey, guess what? Your nephew is is brimming with blood. So I think something happened. Never. So we're not even going to try, but we just know that she's a strange child and she started acting even more strange. She claimed that the boy hit Brian and was playing with a pair of broken scissors. But that was Mary Bell's big mistake. The mutilation of the body with scissors had been kept from the press and the public. It was a detail known only to investigators and one other person, Brian's murderer. Mary's story, though, went nowhere, as a so-called boy had an alibi, so she must have named him. He was actually at the airport on the afternoon of Brian's murder. However, by mentioning the pair of scissors, a piece of evidence that had not been publicly revealed, Mary now implicated herself. And to the police, it was becoming clear that one or both girls were involved in the murder. And this had to just blow their minds. On the day that Brian Howe was buried, Mary was observed by a detective that was standing just outside the Howe's house. According to Detective Chief Inspector James Dobson from Newcastle Police, he said, Mary was standing in front of the Howe's house when the coffin was brought out. I was, of course, watching her. And it was when I saw her there that I knew I did not dare risk another day. She stood there laughing, laughing and rubbing her hands. I thought, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one, end quote. 
So Detective Chief Inspector James Dobson decided something had to be done immediately before another child died. And so again, he questioned Mary's friend Norma before Brian's funeral. And this time what Norma told the police shocked them. Though both of their stories would change over time, the story that Norma told the police on the day of Brian's funeral was enough for the police to pick up Mary immediately. According to Norma, Mary confessed to killing Brian and even brought her to the boarded up house afterward to show her the body. Mary described to Norma how she had squeezed his neck and strangled him, claiming that she enjoyed it. So then when the police brought Mary in and questioned her, she remained evasive and admitted to nothing. She refused to make a statement and accused Norma of lying and trying to get her into trouble. The detectives were amazed at Mary's intelligence and her agile mind, though. She would answer one question and then correctly anticipate the further series of questions from police and give answers to those as well. That's why this little piece of information that I found doesn't make any sense to me. Mary Bell stresses that after she committed her first murder alone, she didn't fully understand that poor Martin Brown was literally gone forever. I do agree, though, that Mary needed to have been put in a juvenile mental hospital instead of a reform school to deal with her disturbed nature. And so did her friend Norma Bell, actually. But in 1968, they didn't have those facilities. They saw that something was wrong with these two girls. But what could they do? Nevertheless, what people should have and would have and could have done for Mary Bell, Chief Inspector Dobson had a job to do. He formally charged the 11-year-old Mary Bell with the murder of Brian Howe. Upon doing so, Mary replies, that's all right with me. Not the normal reaction, I don't think. And then when he charged Norma Bell, who in anger at the charge declares, I never, I'll pay you back for this. Assuming she's telling the police she's going to pay them back for it, or she's going to pay Mary back for it. Either way, it's a little more of a normal reaction, I think. Mary was released from jail at first, but after additional information was provided by Norma, she was brought back into the station and finally admitted to being there when Brian was killed. Still, she pushed all of the blame onto Norma for the murder. Nonetheless, both girls were arrested and charged with homicide, and a trial date was set. As you can imagine, the police station was not accustomed to housing such young offenders. The first night in their small jail cells, the girls were restless. Meanwhile, after hearing of the horrible deaths of the two young boys and of Mary's arrest, her school teacher, Eric Foster, decided that he wanted to look over his troubled pupils' exercise books just to see if, you know, if he would have looked closer, if there was something he would have seen. And there he found that Mary had made notes about Martin's death and drew pictures which contained information about the murder scene that was never revealed to the public. There was only one explanation. Mary was there when the little boy died. At the trial, the prosecutor told the court that Bell's reason for committing the murders was, quote, solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing, end quote. Leading up to and during the trial, new evidence and information surfaced, and it was the information about the nursery school being broken into because they didn't know who it was, and the notes that were left because they had presumed Martin's death was an accident and they wrote the notes off as a joke. Well, Mary would later admit to writing them for, quote, a giggle. It also came out that Mary had been overheard by other children screaming, I am a murderer 
and pointing to the house where Brian was found, saying, That's where I killed. I don't know if she said it like that, because that was annoying. That's where I killed. But Mary was known to tell tall tales, and her claims weren't taken seriously at the time. But during the trial, I'm sure they are. Apparently, also while awaiting trial, Mary made many strange comments to the prison guards, including, I like hurting little things that can't fight back. What? If I was a guard, I'd be like, you know what, shut your little yappery little thing. Mary's lack of emotions, unresponsiveness, and strange behavior were becoming more and more apparent to everybody because now they're looking at her, and it led psychiatrists to label her as a psychopath. I would agree. During the trial, when family members started to come forward about what Mary had endured in her young life, it started to make a little more sense to the adults as to how a child could turn into a violent psychopath. Mary Bell and Norma Bell were both charged with two counts of manslaughter. Both girls testified during the trial, implicating each other in the crimes. It was noted, however, that the girls still seemed to have a strange bond between them. During the trial, the prosecutor says, Well, that was a very naughty thing to do, wasn't it? To think of killing little boys and girls and talk about it? The prosecution questioned Norma Bell on the 17th of December in 1968. At court two at the Newcastle Assizes, the court is told that the two defendants in the dock murdered solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing. In an effort to make allowance for the young age of the defendants, Mr. Justice Cusack rules that lawyers can sit with their clients. So over the course of nine days, the court hears testimony from both Mary and Norma. Prosecutor Rudolph Lyons opens the trial suggesting that whoever murdered Brian also murdered Martin. The court hears of the evidence from handwriting experts about the confessional notes found at the nursery, which are linked to both girls. It is told of the morbid questioning of the victim's families by Mary and how she had asked to see the dead bodies. Forensic evidence implicates Mary as gray fibers from one of her wool dresses were discovered on the bodies of both victims. Pretty good investigative work, I think, back then. Fibers from Norman's maroon skirt were also found on Brian's shoes. Taken all together, it makes for a strong case against both defendants. As with their police interviews, the sharp contrast between the two girls plays out in court, and particularly when they take the stand to answer the barrister's questions. Mary maintains her intelligent, dominating manner, giving witty quips to the lawyers. Observers say that Norma seems to be a pathetic child is overwhelmed by the trial. After the children's testimony, the defense calls the psychiatrists who have examined Mary Dr. Robert Orton testifies that he thinks she suffers from a psychopathic personality disorder, that she has a demonstrated a lack of feeling towards others and is liable to act on impulse. Apparently, Mary's mother, Betty, is said to appear during only one of the court hearings. During the trial, it is learned that Mary had told Norma in reference to the killing, I squeezed his neck and pushed up his lungs. That's how you kill them. So it's just like explaining to a friend how you, I don't know, how you do a piece of art. This is what you do. You hold your brush like this and then you just whip it around or you know, whatever. <laughs> that might be a bad analogy, but it's, she's just very matter of fact. This is how you kill people. That is a bizarre thought. The jury of five women and seven men take under four hours to return a verdict. Norma is found not guilty of manslaughter as she's considered to be quote, simple-minded, end quote. Mary Bell is cleared of murder, but found guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. And the judge passes a sentence of detention for life. 
Mr. Justice Cusack describes Mary as dangerous and posing a very grave risk to other children. Mary's psychiatrists rely on observations alone. No one comes forward from her family to try and explain how her past may have affected her behavior. So it's not until much later that we learn about some of the stuff that she alleges happened to her. Meanwhile, the British press referred to the child murderer Mary Bell as, quote, evil born, end quote. On December 17, 1968, the girls were read their verdicts. Norma Bell was regarded as an unwilling accomplice who had fallen under a bad influence. She was acquitted of all charges against her. Instead of first-degree murder, like we said, Mary was convicted of manslaughter, but it was due to diminished responsibility based on the psychological assessment presented at trial. Experts stated that Mary showed classic symptoms of psychopathy and could not be held fully responsible for her actions. Psychology experts now believe that the sexual behavior that she witnessed and was forced to take part in as a very young child may have harmed Mary's mental development, making her unable to feel the same emotions as other children her age. And, and I could see how that can make sense, even if we don't believe that she was sodomized or, you know, whipped in front of a client because that's what the client wanted, though that part does kind of make sense because Betty wasn't opposed to just hitting your child or yelling at her or telling her she's awful or throwing her out a window. So why wouldn't she say, hey, Mary, come here. I see you over there in the corner looking at us anyway, then whipping her. That to me, I can believe, I guess. She was to be detained at Her Majesty's Pleasure, which is basically an indefinite sentence of imprisonment. The judge concluded that Mary was a dangerous person and a serious threat to other children. After being found guilty, Mary writes a letter to her mom. It reads, Please, Mom, put my tiny mind at ease. Tell judge and jury on your knees. Sounds more like a poem that she's writing. They will listen to your cry of please. The guilty one is you, not me. I am sorry it has to be this way. We'll both cry and you will go away. Tell them you are guilty, please. So then, ma'am, I'll be free. Your daughter, Mary. Actually, that was pretty good considering she had to be super stressed out. And she's not saying what her mother did to her, but that, mom, you know you're guilty of this and I'm put away, and nothing happens to you? Anyway, I'm not excusing her actions. I'm trying to understand them. The justice system was not used to detaining young girls, so the authorities were unsure where to place Mary Bell. Bell was initially detained in a Durham remand home before being transferred to a second remand home in South Norwood. She was then transferred to Red Bank Secure Unit, which was a young offender's institution in Newton Le Willows. Oh, that sounds very pretty. We have a Newton here in Iowa. It's not called Newton Le Willows, though. <laughs> it's in Merseyside, and in early 1969, she was the only young female, approximately with 24 other inmates. According to the Guardian, Mary Bell was, quote, the only girl among 20 or so boys at an approved school in Merseyside, which was Red Bank that I just mentioned. There, she allegedly was subjected to sexual abuse by a member of the staff and also by fellow inmates to which the rest of the staff would turn a blind eye. That, once again, don't know if that's true. She spent six years in Red Bank, then at the age of 16, she was transferred to the Moore Court Open Prison. Nearly nine years after her conviction, in 1977, Mary would briefly escape from the adult prison to which she had just been transferred to, but was quickly caught. Despite that, the powers that be were impressed with Bell's treatment and her rehabilitation. After 12 years, and they let her out of Ascom Grange Open Prison in 1980. She was only 23 years old. 
And I imagine there was probably some feeling of, uh, I don't know, of guilt or, or something, that something just doesn't seem to be right to see this little child in, in a prison with adults, especially in a prison where there's, there's other men. She was 23 years old and was granted anonymity to start a new life under a new name. She was released on license, which meant that she was technically still serving her sentence, but was able to do so while living in the community under strict probation. Mary Bell was given a new identity to provide her with a chance at a new life and to protect her from tabloid attention. Even still, she was forced to move several times to escape the hounding of journalists and tabloids, newspapers, and just the general public, which somehow always found ways of tracking her down. And in 1984, Mary Bell gave birth to a daughter. This was a great concern about whether or not she should even be allowed to keep her child. After all, she had murdered two children. Though Mary was allowed to keep and raise her daughter, Bell's daughter didn't know anything about her mother's crimes until she was 14, and a tabloid found Bell's common-law husband to track them both down. Soon, there were a slew of journalists that were surrounding her house, and they would just camp out in front of it. The family had to escape their home with bedsheets over their heads. All of the attention, the hounding by journalists and others were, was due primarily to the publication of a book written about Mary by Gitta Sereny. At one point after the book, that's titled Cries Unheard, was published, it was discovered that Mary Bell was paid to tell her side of the story. This, of course, was an issue for many people. Prime Minister Tony Blair says, quote, I cannot instinctively feel it is right that someone should make money out of crimes that are absolutely appalling. I don't think it is justifiable. If the law can be tightened sensibly, it should be, the Prime Minister added. But Miss Sereny, whose book was being serialized by the Times, she defended her actions. And she says, this money is absolutely infinitesimal in comparison with the offers that Bell has had from the very same newspapers who have been screaming the loudest these last 10 days. She added, and the offers are continuing to come in. Miss Sereny dismissed claims that she gave Bell more than 50,000 pounds made when the Guardian broke the story on Saturday, but admitted that Bell had received some money from her. She didn't give the amount. And she says, I felt that I wanted to give her some of the money that was advanced to me for this book because I could not just use her as everybody else has done, Miss Sereny explained. She described Bell as a horribly damaged child rather than a criminal. And today, Bell is in protective custody at a secret address. Both she and her daughter remain anonymous and are protected under court order. Some feel she doesn't deserve the protection. June Richardson, the mother of Martin Brown, told the media, it's all about her and how she has to be protected. As victims, we are not given the same rights as killers. Indeed, Mary Bell remains protected by the British government today, and court rulings that protect the identities of certain convicts are even unofficially referred to as the Mary Bell Orders. Dame Elizabeth Butler Sloss, who was president of the family division, granted the injunction forbidding media disclosure of the Bell's current identities and whereabouts under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights. The so-called Mary Bell Order did not ultimately keep Mary and her daughter anonymous for long. According to a special report by The Observer, the injunction, quote, has not stopped journalists from stalking her as she moved from town to town nor from offering her large sums of money to tell her story, end quote. And in 2009, it was revealed that Mary Bell had become a grandmother. The child was referred to by the High Court only as Z, and will remain anonymous just like her mother and Mary Bell's daughter. At the age of 64, 
June Richardson, the mother of four-year-old son, Martin Brown, who was suffocated by Bell, responded, quote, A child is a blessing. She took my blessing and left me with grief for the rest of my life. I hope when she looks at this child, she remembers the two she murdered. I will never see a grandchild for my son. I hope every time she looks at this baby, she realizes what my family are missing out on because of what she has done. End quote. It is not currently known what identity Mary and her daughter assumed or where they live. There have been two books written by Gitta Sereny about Mary Bell. The Case of Mary Bell was written in 1972, and that one is no longer in print. And then this one, Cries Unheard, Why Children Kill, The Case of Mary Bell. And that, my friends and my listeners, is our story today. Keep your loved ones close, and remember, if you see something, say something. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please subscribe and share. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> and give us a rating. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and write us a review because it means so much to us. Take care. Bye-bye.